Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Tonight I am so thrilled that we have a fabulous guest, the author of a book that I just finished that I found fascinating. It's called The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. And the front of this book has train tracks that end at the end of a cliff. So it's it's pretty frightening and it's enticing enough to want to read. And we have the guest who actually wrote this book, and his name is Jonathan Zittrain. He holds the chair in Internet Governance and Regulation at Oxford University, and he is a principal of the Oxford Internet Institute. He is also the Jack N. and Lillian R. Berkman Visiting Professor for Entrepreneurial Legal Studies at Harvard Law School, where he co-founded Harvard Law School's Berkman Center for Internet and Society in 1996. With students, he began Chilling Effects, which is a website that tracks and archives legal threats made to Internet content producers. Google now sends its users to Chilling Effects when it has altered its search results at the behest of national governments. Jonathan's research interests include battles for control of digital property and content, cryptography, electronic privacy, the roles of intermediaries within internet architecture, and the useful and unobtrusive deployment of technology and education. He was also co-consul in Eldred v. Ashcroft, which challenged the Sony Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998. He performed the first large-scale tests of internet filtering in China and in Saudi Arabia in 2002. And now, as part of the OpenNet initiative, he has co-edited a study of internet filtering by national governments called Access Denied, the Practice and Policy of Global Internet Filtering. You can find out a lot more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and also at www.jz.org. Let me tell you a little bit about this future of the Internet and what people are saying. Here's one of the praises for this book. Jonathan Zittrain does what no one has done before. He eloquently and subtly pinpoints the magic that makes Wikipedia and the Internet as a whole work. The best way to save the Internet is to turn off your laptop until you've read this book. And that was by Jimbo Wales, who is the founder of Wikipedia. Here's another one. The most compelling book ever written on why a transformative technology trajectory threatens to stifle that technology's greatest promise for society. 
So we're really pretty thrilled to have him with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. I'm pleased to be here. Jonathan, you're the professor of Internet Governance and Regulation at Oxford University and co-founder of Harvard Law School's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. So as a lawyer, how is it that you became such a techie and so involved in technology? I was actually a techie long before I was a lawyer. Uh, I actually uh, used CompuServe as a 13-year-old in the 1980s and uh, charged it to my parents' credit card, um, (laughs) ran up a pretty huge bill, and they said, you can't do this anymore. And uh, I ultimately became a system operator on CompuServe, a sysop, where I helped out in the Texas Instruments Forum in exchange for free time uh, rather than having to pay by the hour. So that's sort of how I got my start, and the interest in law really came uh, in part from wondering how these forums uh, should govern themselves. Ah, unbelievable. So you actually you committed identity theft with your parents' credit card. Is that right, what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I would phrase it that way. <laughs> Actual and apparent authority, as they say in law school. Right, as long as they didn't complain. Right. By the way, I saw you on the June 17th Colbert Report talking about your new book, The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. How was that being on his show? He's such a fun guy. I think he's terrific, and it's clear that uh, certainly the audience uh, thinks the world of him, but also uh, so does the crew, and that certainly says a lot for him. Well, you were real lively on that show and looked like you were having a great time. Uh, I had a terrific time. Uh, It was terrifying in its way because you never know what he's going to say. I think one of the the things that you're warned about him is he's kind of like just a a drunk at a bar. (laughs) I don't know what will happen next, but it was it was a lot of fun. Well, you know what? You did such a great that job that maybe this is your, your next career, being you know a media interviewer or something on TV. You never know. We will see. <laughs> so the name of your book is The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. And I have to tell you, I finished it yesterday. I thought it was great. I could tell you were a techie first because most of my lawyer friends, even the, who I've interviewed on this show, have nowhere near the depth of understanding that you have of all this stuff. It's amazing to me, actually. It's wonderful. But the average person like me who's online, who loves the Internet, may be wondering, why do you want to stop it? Well, I worry that what lies ahead won't much resemble uh, what we've had for the past 30 years. We've been on a wonderful run so far with technologies. The more I learn about them, the more I see just how uh, unexpected they were. Um, If you were going to build a global network from scratch, there were many ways to do it, and this is only one of them, the Internet that we have. And it's an unusual way. It's one that requires a lot of cooperation and goodwill among parties that don't even know each other. And when I see the networks like CompuServe and AOL and Prodigy, in a way they are much less naive. They don't assume that people will be friendly and nice, and they had business plans, and you know, they were a much more sensible way to build a network. It's just the network uh, that we have is much better. Yes. And trying to appreciate what makes it better and how to preserve it is really a lot of what the book is about. Right. Well, the future of the Internet and how to stop it, for me at least, was very insightful and enlightening. I'm not a techie. I know more than most people. I can do Adobe. I can do all my computer stuff. But, but I don't have any of the understanding except I better do my anti-spyware, and I don't know how things work. But, you know, I have to say, when I, when I got the book and I, and I looked at the cover, it scared the living daylights out of me. You know, it's, it's pretty outrageous. You have these train tracks ending at a cliff. So why don't you tell us how that book ended up with this cover? Well, there's actually uh, a nice story behind that. It turns out that the publisher, uh, which in the United States is Yale Press, it's uh, Penguin in the rest of the world, uh, they came up with a couple standard covers. One was a hand saying stop, um, which didn't work because uh, I'm a co-author of another book that came out at the same time called Access Denied, about Internet filtering around the world, for which the cover was a hand saying stop. So <laughs> you two, can't have two, two books stopping. with the same cover. Right. And then the second suggestion was a big stoplight, oh, uh, no. which is okay because the word stop is in the title, but it just didn't seem to be as much of a verb rather than just a noun. Right. Uh, so I put it out to an Internet contest. There's a wonderful website called worth1000.com, as in a picture is worth 1,000 words. Yeah. And at worth1000.com, uh, several... Many people entered, and a guy named Ivo Vanderint uh, took the prize and designed the cover. 
Oh, that is great. So did he win any money for this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He got money. Oh, that is terrific. It's it's really a wonderful book. And this it, this was just designed, I mean, he didn't take a real picture, did he? This isn't from a real picture, is it? <laughs> no, it's some good Photoshopping work. I was going to say. I saw it, it in very different versions, so I, I can attest to that. Yeah, because I was going to say, I can't imagine where this would be if it was. I want to know. I don't want to go on that train. Right, right. <laughs> You know, in your book, I learned a lot about the history of the Internet. You know, I, I really didn't know that. And actually, nowhere in your book did you mention Al Gore is inventing this Internet. So um, <laughs> why don't you tell our audience a little bit how it did get started and who really was involved and a little bit about the philosophy? Well, the most important features to me uh, is a very rich history and uh, one that would take much, much time to fully flesh out, but the, the points that are most interesting to me are the ways in which uh, the Internet came with not much of a business model. It was mostly experimentation, people wanting to uh, try out different ways of routing packets from one place to another, getting data from here to there. Uh, the story of wanting it to be a network that could survive a nuclear war is a little bit apocryphal. Uh, it's not as true as maybe people might <laughs> think it would be fun to have it be. But there were researchers who had lots of data they were generating in computer science and nearby sciences, and they wanted to move the data around. And they got some government grants to start thinking about how you would do that. And most interesting is that they, they, they had one major limitation and one freedom. The limitation they had was that the government grants were not for huge amounts of money. Even over the course of 30 years, the amount that the U.S. government put into the uh, development of Internet protocols is less than uh, just the IPO of Yahoo alone huh. uh, when it went public in the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. And so they couldn't assume that they'd be able to wire every home to every other home with a privileged wire that was all theirs to use. Um, and as a result, they designed protocols that uh, were very simple and that presumed others would bring networks to the party so that uh, the way you get data from one part to another is by passing it from one intermediate router to another. And it's almost like saying you've got the University of Maine online and they have some data that's destined to go to Texas. And so they pass it to somebody in New York who passes it to somebody in New Jersey who passes it to somebody in Maryland, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just sort of a neighborly thing to do. The way these routing tables work, you trust each entity to advertise what it's near and what it's not and to generally be cooperative in moving the bits around. Um, it's a very strange way to do it, but when you understand the limitations, you can see why they invented it that way. They also had a freedom, and the freedom was they didn't have to make any money with it. And if you don't have to make money with it, you don't have to do such basic things as identify everybody on the network so you can send them a credit card bill, or measure how much time they're spending on the network so you can make the bill greater for those who use it more. And as a result, the network was built in a way that doesn't need to take account of who's online. And that's why there's not even basic user uh, authentication or identification uh, online. Um, these are great features in building a network that just gets the bits from here to there in a way that uses whatever bandwidth is available. Um, 30 years into it, once the thing has gone mainstream and everybody's using it, it starts to show its age a little bit as there isn't a global identity scheme. So anybody can walk up to a computer and say, I'm president at whitehouse.gov, and, you know, that's how the email will appear. It's almost like that New Yorker magazine cartoon where the two dogs are sitting at the computer and one dog says to the other, hey, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Yeah, there's even an update <laughs> to that now. It has two dogs and one is saying to the other, I had a blog for a while, but then I got bored. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. In your book, you explain that the same qualities that led to the success of the Internet and PC are really those same qualities that are causing it to fail. So tell us what you mean by that. Well, I mean that some of the very openness and trust built into Internet protocols, such as not identifying who's online, or uh, in the case of the PC, the personal computer, which I say is also uh, a so-called generative technology, the PC lets any software run that you hand it. You know, you put the floppy disk in, the PC runs the code. You double-click on something, it loads and runs the code. Right. It assumes that nobody would come along and write code that would fry the machine, uh, either accidentally or on purpose. And again, 30 years into the revolution, uh, we see now that there might even be a business model for doing that kind of thing. 
And those are the kinds of qualities that I simultaneously celebrate but worry uh, that without modification will lead to enough trouble among people who don't like to tinker with their machines 24 hours a day that they will abandon them. Well, yeah, that's true. When I think about the ordinary person, when I'm giving talks on identity theft, for example, and I'm saying, you know, you're running your anti-spyware right and your your anti-virus and all these other things that you need to do to protect yourself, they really don't have a clue what they're doing. Right. And and that's, we're not all you. You know, right. we, we weren't starting at age 13 and getting into computers. And a lot of us, especially those of us who are the baby boomers, and so I think there, it's, it's too much, it's too overwhelming for most consumers to be able to tinker like you're talking about. And, you know, they think they're getting safe software or they think they're at a, at a real website that, that has a, a, a portal that's okay, that's not going to send some malware to them. And, it's, you know, how do, that's the dilemma. How do you keep safe on the right. Internet? Well, I don't expect people to become experts. Uh, if we have that expectation, we'll surely fail. Um, but I do think there are ways to uh, have people agree to devote a little bit of bandwidth, a little bit of uh, computing cycles, and a little bit of their time sometimes to making the Internet a better place, uh, including a safer place. Uh, so I've co-founded an organization called StopBadware.org. It's a nonprofit, And its purpose is to figure out ways to identify bad code as it lurks online and be able to market and keep people away from it um, in a way that enlists people to help. So, for example, we're writing uh, some software right now that people can download to their machines, and it will radiate out that machine's vital signs and how happy is the machine right now, what code is it running. And if you aggregate that with everybody else who's participating, you can start to ask questions when you encounter new code online, you're about to run it, you can say, is this brand new? When did it just come about? Um, was it just yesterday or was it you know, 20 years ago? And that might give you a sense of whether you want to run the code or not. Or on average, does this make machines happier or sadder when they choose to run it? And it's those kinds of... Kind of like a consumer reports? Exactly. A consumer <laughs> reports uh, aggregated with the real-life experiences of consumers. It's one thing for consumer reports figure out which toasters are likely to catch on fire. It's another to be able to have a sensor in the toaster and be able to send back anonymous data so that out of a million toasters out there, when you know 10% of them catch on fire, boom, we've got the data right there to see it happening. Right. So how would this work? So you've got this software in your computer that, that basically monitors your computer. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. And then it, it puts up a big warning sign, kind of like Google does, if yes. you... okay. Oh, all right. Well, that's good. I, I noticed. Let's talk about that. So how do you get it? You go to uh, stopbadware.org? Yeah, if you go to stopbadware.org, uh, we'll have an alpha up shortly of the software I was talking about that you can download. Um, and in the meantime, uh, you can see the websites that we have already identified as websites that have so-called drive-by downloads. They are ready to uh, download bad code to your machine the moment you visit. And oh. uh, you can see the list at stopbadware.org. And thanks to a partnership with Google, um, if the uh, one of these listed websites comes up as a Google search result, you will be warned at the point of looking at the search results on Google automatically, thanks to Google. Oh, wow. Now, Google's doing a lot. and But there's also the, the dark side of the privacy, for example. You know, the map Google where people can look and see you in your backyard or, yeah. take, you know, that kind of stuff. I have to tell you, I love Google right now because my son is an intern this summer in marketing at Google in New York City. Oh, wow. So I have to say I'm excited about Google from that end. But I also worry about some of the privacy issues. What do you think about those, Jonathan? Well, I think there are certainly issues. I think with Google... As with many of the other larger dot-coms, we often know the shape of the issues. We know what there is to worry about. Google has a you know, chief privacy officer. They have people who worry about this. Um, they have the Federal Trade Commission looking carefully at what they're doing. So uh, it's a configuration that's important, but one that uh, sort of from an academic perspective is somewhat familiar. Some of the privacy issues that really intrigue me are not so much the threats coming from corporate quarters as they are threats coming from peers, from people who have cameras, they're taking pictures all the time as tourists, 
and then just flowing them uh, into Flickr instantly right. and tagging them with location and date and soon automatic image recognition. And that's the kind of thing that can lead to a sea change in privacy for which I don't think we've really fully thought through uh, how to deal with it. Right. You know, we had Dan Solove on this show, and I know you referred to his book, The Future of the Internet and uh, Future of uh, Reputation, reputation uh-huh, yeah. on the Internet. We had him on the show. That was a great book, too. Yeah, he's and a you talk, Yeah, he is. And he talked in his book about the same one of the issues that you talked about, which is the girl with the poop, you know, in, in South Korea. Yeah, right. where she, Yeah, and you told a couple stories as well where somebody can just with their cell phone take a video of you and put it up on YouTube. Right. And then instantaneously millions of people see this and right. then, you know, you could commit suicide over that because your reputation is ruined everywhere. Right. So that's that is a huge issue. But there there are a lot of other issues that you talk about in your book about privacy. I want to get back to that, but I want to I want to get back to a little bit of the premises cuz this was one of the things that really got my mind saying, "Aha." When you were talking about the differences between appliances and appliance issues and generative qualities, so t- tell us a little bit about that. You you t- you talk about the threat to generative uh, qualities in the internet, and you say how it's different than an appliance like a toaster. So why don't you talk about that? Well, one of the reasons I'm interested in the history of some of these technologies, internet and PC and interested in explaining why they didn't have to be this way. In fact, there were plenty of other competing models that were much more like the refrigerators, automobiles, radios. I mean, basically all of their technology in our lives, uh, once it goes mainstream, is sort of like an appliance. And by an appliance, I mean it's pretty easy to use. The hard edges have been sanded off. There's an instruction manual. There's a number to call if something goes wrong. And the vendor generally is privileged in deciding how it will work. They design it, and then you buy it. The generative technologies, like the Internet and the PC, they roll off the assembly line kind of incomplete, and they're waiting for you to figure out what you want to do with them. What software do you want to run on them? And if you don't write it yourself, then you go to somebody you know or that you want to pay money to or otherwise get the software from, and you run their software. Um, If we don't come up with ways to easily sort out the good code from the bad code, then I do think there's a possibility people will abandon that entirely and they will end up uh, migrating to uh, a number of what I call information appliances, which are the way PCs would have been had they been designed by regular average firms from the very day uh, one. So that might include uh, things like most video game consoles where the manufacturer decides uh, what software will run on them, what games you can play on them, Uh, Not just anybody can write a game for them without a license. Uh, It includes the Amazon Kindle and devices like that. It includes uh, the iPod, where you can't reprogram the iPod unless you're really feeling nerdy. (laughs) And uh, it includes the iPhone. The iPhone, to me, is a great example because when it first came out, Steve Jobs said outright, look, we're going to control everything that's on this phone. You don't want it to be like a PC because then you'll load on three pieces of software from somewhere and it'll stop working. And that's why it's going to be something Apple runs from soup to nuts. And yeah, but the year... iPhone was so popular. My son got it the very first day that it won. He paid the $400 yeah, immediately no, I, or whatever it I was. I think that's part of what made it so popular. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then a year later, Steve Jobs said, uh, all right, we're going to open this up to outside coding. Now people can write software for the iPhone the way they used to be able to write software for the PC and still can. And there's some amazing fine print, though. If you write new software for the iPhone, you can't just give it to somebody with an iPhone the way that you can if they have a PC and you've written PC software. Instead, you have to send it through the iPhone Apps Store. And the iPhone Apps Store is run by Steve Jobs and Apple. And if you want to sell the software, they take a cut. If you sell it for nothing, they take a cut of nothing. And then... uh, if they don't like the software for any reason, prospectively or retroactively, they can kill it. Right. And that's pretty extraordinary. Uh, there's so many pieces of software that have looked threatening at first but have turned out later to be incredibly useful, including peer-to-peer networking, uh, that if, they were, if the main platform where people were coding was the iPhone or something like it, uh, it would be nipped in the bud. A court order would just say stop it because the court can. Right. And I am worried about that kind of uh, ecosystem. 
Now, I want to go back to where you were talking about appliances, because when I grew up, you know, the toaster was the toaster. It wasn't a smart toaster. It, it couldn't, you know, uh, communicate back with the, uh, with the company who made it. Right. Basically, I bought it. I would have to communicate. If the right. toaster didn't work and there's a problem with it, I would call back. My refrigerator didn't tell me at the time, hey, you know, you need more right. milk or whatever. It was just, it was what it was. And so the appliance, once it was there, I had my privacy. I didn't have to worry about someone looking in at me or, you know, my car would not be listening in with the OnStar right. or all those types of things. So there is a huge difference between appliances as when I grew up, the TV and the radio and all that stuff, and the appliances that is really coming into the smart appliances now where we're what you call tethered appliances. You want to talk about that and the privacy issues? Well, the way I think about it, by analogy, uh, toasters have been um, throughout our discussion so far. <laughs> so let's stick with that. Okay. Uh, imagine coming in for breakfast, and uh, I discover that the toaster uh, one morning has three slots instead of two. And there's a sign sticking out of it that says, congratulations, it's the summer update. You got a new <laughs> slot. And you come in the next day, and it's gone, and there's a sign that says, sorry, there was a problem with the summer update. We've had a rollback. We apologize for any toast that was crushed in the rollback. <laughs> and then uh, the next week you come in, and it's making orange juice. And that's strange. I mean, you realize, wow, I didn't buy a toaster. I bought a breakfast device, and right. who knows what it'll be doing, even though it's trying to do whatever it thinks I want it to do. Um, from a privacy perspective, it means there's a real opportunity for the vendor to monitor what's going on with the device and for the government to demand that the vendor monitor. And one example of that is the OnStar system that some cars have that do turn-by-turn directions. You just press the uh, the button to get it going in the rearview mirror, and there's a microphone so you can direct the system and use it for hands-free calling and things like that. And, uh, and if the, you're in an accident, it can, I mean, there's yeah. the benefit that if you're in an accident, they know what happened to you and they can try and talk to you and help you through or see if you're okay. So, I mean, yes. that's the benefit, but exactly. there is this dark side. Well, it turns out the FBI asked uh, a company that provides OnStar-like services to uh, to simply turn on the microphone in a car containing people of interest to the FBI so that all conversations in the car were relayed back to the FBI. And uh, just at all times, everything in the car is getting recorded. And that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's, from one point of view, a totally pedestrian application of the wiretap statutes. From another perspective, you realize, wow, our choices are making it so the government can trivially, you know, in our case with a warrant, but there are other governments that don't worry about that. Of course, we've heard recently how there haven't always been warrants for, for wiretapping in our country. Right, right. <laughs> and then with that, you end up with a situation where, uh, you know, the government can eavesdrop so easily. And uh, it's a technology for which doing that doesn't require the complicity of a lot of people. When government exercise of power requires the complicity of intermediaries, there are opportunities, should there be abuse, for word of that to leak out, for, you know, for all sorts of uh, safeguards that aren't just the formal safeguards of the law, but the informal safeguards of, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. Much harder to do when you have a more centralized technology that can do the monitoring. Well, we just saw this with AT&T, right? Congress just changed the law so that the uh, AT&T and the other telecommunications industry people who provided uh, sensitive data, you know, sensitive information about phone calls uh, for the government, they can't be sued, even though there was no uh, warrant. Yes, I'm not fully familiar with, uh, I mean, I've, I've read about it in the paper, but I haven't right. actually and, read the statute myself yet. Right, and so that's basically what they're saying, but the, the bottom line is, is all those lawsuits for invasion of privacy are, are gone, are yeah. going to be dismissed because yeah. of the, the law was changed. So, I think those kinds of issues coupled with the kinds of tethered appliances that you talk about are, are pretty frightening. And not even the government. I mean, think about how maybe the car uh, industry might want to listen in about if you were driving and you're, something happened in a car accident. And then they want to say, well, wait a minute, you were, it was really your fault. It wasn't the fault of the car maker. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. It could be used for other reasons, and I've seen this kind of stuff in privacy where it isn't just the government, but it can be, uh, 
individuals and it can be companies that also right. could get this information and use it against us. Right, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, you talk in your book about net neutrality. Could you share with my listeners, what does that mean? Well, net neutrality means different things to different people. In general, it's getting at the question of whether the intermediaries who move data between you and the person or entity you want to communicate with uh, ought to be treating different bits differently, or maybe even the same bits differently. Uh, the general understanding uh, on the way Internet protocols work is that you just move the bits around. If you take time to figure out what they are and where they're going, whether they're first class or third class, you end up treating everything third class. It's just much less efficient to figure out what's efficient than just to route everything as quickly as possible. Uh, in some ways, it's the same kind of spirit by which we say that uh, there's, you know, 90% of email is spam. Only 10% is actual email. But so what? Email isn't that uh, labor-intensive uh, in the in the middle of the Internet. Just route it around and then let people filter it at the end point. Um, what you hear from some Internet service providers is the claim that they're really seeing some congestion, certainly on the local loop, on the last little bit of uh, hop that the data has to take to get to the person who's a subscriber of theirs, and that uh, they want to be able to prioritize some packets over others, either because they end up with certain relationships with people out on the net that Google's willing to pay them money, and if Google pays them, they'll prioritize Google's packets on the way to customers. Oh. Uh, or any number of other ways. Certain applications might be favored so that, you know, voice over Internet protocol gets routed faster than a mere email because it's important to hear mm. somebody's cough in sequence, whereas if the email takes a second longer, no one notices. Uh, so there are very many variants of what it would mean to quote-unquote violate net neutrality and uh, lots of worry about it, and uh, that might be one of the policy issues taken up in the next administration. What I was thinking about in terms of net neutrality, where I would like an ISP to get to really look for malware, you know? Well, that's one of the things I suggest in the book, yeah. and it's a uh, controversial suggestion among those, uh, including myself. Uh, I mean, I favor net neutrality as a general matter, although the policy proposals start to get complicated. And I do think that ISPs can play a role in when a machine on their network, one of their customers, is clearly has a machine that has become a zombie. It's uh, dealing out viruses left and right. I would love to see them take some responsibility for that. It's something they're not eager some to alert. do. Some alert, yeah. Some yeah. kind of an alert and say, hey, you know, your machine, I think you gave a great example about some company that didn't know that their, um, that their website was uh, had some a portal that that was sending out malware. Yeah, and often they don't care at yeah. all, which is funny. But I mean, it seems to me that Google or whomever, instead of just saying, I think in that case, Google sent a warning to anyone who wanted to go to that site, don't go to that site. There's some problem with it, but they didn't go directly to the website owner and say, you know, you have a problem. We're, we're going to put a warning up. It just seemed to me that somehow there should be some kind of notification when you know about something. Just don't turn your head the other way. Right. You know? Right. No, I think that's true. I mean, whether it's the ISP or Google or Explorer or whomever, if they right. see it, just do it. Right. I, I want to introduce you again. We are speaking with a wonderful guru who's not only um, a technology, a brilliant technologist, but he is also a fantastic attorney, and he is Jonathan Zitrain, who holds the chair in Internet Governance and Regulation at Oxford University. And he is also um, co-founder of the Harvard Law School's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. And he did that. He founded that back in 1996. And he also has a website called Chilling Effects, which is a website that tracks and archives legal threats made to the Internet. And you can go to, is it chillingeffects.org? Is that what it is? Yes. Okay, chillingeffects.org. And he's also got... Um, StopBadware.org, and I love his new book, which you're really going to enjoy reading it. It's just amazing. It's called The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It and Really Provocative Thinking. And, and if I can understand it, then I think anybody can understand it. So I hope my questions aren't too simple for you. No, no, they're, they're wonderful. <laughs> okay, so let's, let me ask you about this. You know, um, 
what's really at stake here with the future of the Internet? You know, I recently read Zero Day Threat by Byron Akohito. I don't know if you read it, but he's a USA uh, reporter who wrote about um, all the bad threats and what's happening and who's at fault on the Internet. Isn't security really becoming paramount for people that are worried about all the things happening to their websites and their email and their computers? Well, I think that it should be, but it's uh, it's interesting. A lot of tech-aware people don't seem to think of it as much of an issue because they are willing to spend the time and gather the expertise they need to tinker with their own machines and keep them safe so they don't experience it personally. Oh. And I think they think that, well, you know, we've had viruses for a while. We can just weather this. It really is seen as more of an inconvenience than uh, a serious systemic threat. And I disagree with them. I think both uh, there's a possibility that we could see a major systemic threat, the kind of thing where we wake up all on a Wednesday morning and the Internet is not working the way it's supposed to. Uh, a number of PCs, say, have been compromised. And I think we also have the possibility of kind of the death of a thousand cuts, that the way Steve Jobs was talking about why the iPhone wouldn't allow outside code, you know, I think that resonates with a lot of people. Um, and that's where we just see people start to ask to have the PCs locked down or they migrate away to these information appliances. Well, yeah, when you think about all uh, the grids, like the electro electrical grids, you know, one day we wake up and we can't turn on anything because somebody, some badware from some country who hates us and wants to kill us destroys us through the Internet. Yes, now in that sense, uh, I'm not as worried about these are so-called SCADA systems, uh, including electrical grids and dams and bridges and things like that. Those, we know that they it would be awful if they got attacked, and, and those don't need to have direct connections to the web uh, or to the Internet in ways that would leave them vulnerable to a standard virus. So in some ways, I'm worried less about that form of critical infrastructure than I am about just the reams and reams of standard personal computers that might be used at FedEx to route packages, including, you know, blood that has to get from somewhere right. to another. Or, yeah, uh, you organ know, donors. Of, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, well, in his book, I don't know if you read Zero Day Threat, but you might you might want to read it. Uh, he actually gave me a copy. It's oh, in my inbox. I'm oh, good. To read it. Yeah, you should read it. Yeah. I, I had to read it because I interviewed him, and um, it was very enlightening. We had a great interview with him. And what he talks about, which is one of the things that is my expertise, is understanding about identity theft and how the when you have all these bots and zombies and all these things you talk about, I mean, getting into somebody's computer and being able to access their passwords and getting into their banks and their bank accounts and their, you know, I'm not as worried about a credit card. Anybody using my credit card, I'm not going to be held responsible. But if somebody takes everything out of my bank account or my college accounts for my kids or something like that, that is entirely different. Yeah. And and so that's what he talks about, that that kind of problem with the lack of security is, is very dangerous. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about the privacy issues on the Internet and the concerns, some more of the concerns about surveillance. You gave lots of examples in your book about some of the surveillance issues. And um, could you share one or two of those? Well, uh, in the privacy chapter, uh, again, what I'm – generally worried about is so-called peer-to-peer surveillance, ways in which very innocent actions by many of us can add up to something that has a huge effect on privacy. So the idea that we are adding location stamp, time stamp, possibly identity stamp through facial recognition, uh, even of complete strangers that might stray into the camera frame when we take a picture, and that we just load those onto websites like Flickr or Facebook, it's possible then uh, to end up being able to ask a database like that, okay, where did where have I seen John Smith uh, in anybody's camera frame in the past three weeks? Or yes. please tell me everybody who entered or left the following establishment, according to the shutters that are <laughs> flapping. And it's funny because you think a lot about CCTV and other more centralized technologies deployed by governments to monitor citizens or maintain public safety. And this is just a much more oblique 
uh, way of arriving at largely the same thing. I think of the consent decree uh, under which the police in the city of New York have been operating for years, uh, by which the judge says they're not allowed to you know, take pictures at political rallies because of past abuses. And then you just imagine they don't have to. There's plenty of people taking the pictures at the rallies right. and putting them online. Exactly. Yeah. I had a question about uh, that I read about you in the past. It said that you performed the first large-scale test of Internet filtering in China and Saudi Arabia back in 2002. What is going on with Internet filtering back there? That must have been a, a very exciting thing to do. Yeah, I was amazed in 2002 to see that very few... There, there were some reports, you know, China filters its Internet, it filters the web, but no actual hard data on it. You, you know, you try to find out what they filter and for how long and all that, nobody knew. So I started in a very low-tech way to try to answer the question. I hooked up a modem in my office in Boston and placed an international long-distance call to an Internet service provider in Beijing as if I were in a hotel and wanting to dial up and get online after landing, <laughs> and uh, started asking for one website after another and recording which ones I could get to and which ones I couldn't. And uh, along with a research assistant, we generated a report then on filtering in China that was the first uh, large-scale, you know, systematic report on what was filtered in China. Uh, that worked until, again, the phone bill came in and the dean oh, wondered right. what was going on. And we came up with some other ways of effectively doing the same thing. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, they actually gave us access to their network through a proxy for about two weeks in order to run the tests, which we were very grateful for. Wow. Uh, and got a lot of information that way. So is that your new book? Is that going to be in? Well, that's a book called Access Denied. And uh, since 2002, we've teamed up with researchers at the University of Toronto, the University of Cambridge, and the University of Oxford. Uh, and that's the OpenNet initiative. And with very generous support from a number of people, uh, first and foremost, uh, the MacArthur Foundation, we've been able to deploy teams of people around the world to monitor filtering as it happens. And uh, Access Denied, the book, uh, has the data available online, or you can get it uh, you know, at a bookstore, and it tells you what's going on one country after another. We, we found filtering in between 40 and 50 countries around the world. Wow, that's amazing. Do you, is there any filtering going on in our country? There have been instances of content filtering in the United States or at the behest of the United States. The most frequent form of filtering takes place when someone alleges copyright infringement. If you fill out a properly formatted form and send it to Google and say, here's a website and they're infringing my copyright, I ask that you take this website out of the Google search engine as a result, chances are very good that Google will do that. And so will other search engines. I don't just mean to single out Google. Um, Google, when they do do that, will send information to chillingeffects.org, uh, which I helped start, uh, so that people can see what's been taken out of the engine in those instances. Uh, of course, that's often private parties asking for the stuff to be taken out. It's not the U.S. government making a claim. But there have been other instances in which in an attempt to combat child abuse images and other uh, extreme pornography, we've seen uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for a brief period of time until the program was struck down by a federal court, and uh, a couple other states looking into the possibilities of asking Internet service providers who have customers in those states to block access to faraway websites that are said to contain those images. And uh, for the period of time that the law was in operation, you know, ISPs weren't that pleased about it for a variety of reasons, but they did it. Wow. So in, in terms of, I know sometimes it's been very hard for people that I know that have been victims of identity theft, for example, if there is a false uh, match.com uh, entry up there or social networking uh, entry that really isn't that person, that they've had a hard time getting it down even when it's them. I think that's true. It can be very hard to do. Uh, it's a double-edged sword that for years federal law in the United States has largely immunized intermediaries from having to worry about liability. They don't stand in the shoes of whoever is defaming somebody even though the defamation appears on their website. Right. And that tends to make them uh, less speedy about reacting to complaints because there's, you know, it might be the right thing to do, but it's not the, the something the law requires. Um, a former student of mine has started a firm called Reputation Defender, where for a fee, it's a dot com, 
but for a fee, you can ask Reputation Defender to go to bat for you. I think mostly not trying to threaten people, but largely just trying to stay on top of it and urge them to do the right thing, so that if you're in that kind of situation, Reputation Defender for a fee will take up the problem. Right, because I've had people call me with these privacy issues. Somebody had belonged to kind of an strange church when she was young right. when she's older and having a, a professional business right. there was this other website that hated that particular right. organization and had her up there that she was a member when she was right. no longer a member right. and they wouldn't take it down they said it's not defamatory because she really used to belong right and so that was a, a real rough now, of one. course in that case the uh the church in question is the direct party that's not somebody else's information they're merely featuring that's the church itself, it sounds like. And in that case... Well, it was uh, hers that she belonged to that church. She didn't yeah. want it up there that she used to belong to that right. church. Right. So that was scary. And then I had another woman who who uh, was from New York City. Actually, it was in the New York Times, and she was on my show subsequent. But I helped her because she found out that someone put up a website, uh, which was like Match.com. It wasn't, but it was similar, and saying that uh, she was hot to trot, gave her phone number, gave her home address, gave all this information, and men were coming to her door and terrifying her. And she said, how did you find out about me? And they said, well, we saw your website, and it wasn't her. And then she, we finally, 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 after all we went through with getting in the New York Times, getting the New York uh, Police Department to help us, we finally found out uh, who it was, and we were able to take down the website, and it was somebody that she knew from 15 years before right. who did that to her. So, right. yeah, it is, it's very scary. Uh, but how is it that if you write to Google and you say there's a copyright infringement, how is it that they take that down immediately without verifying that? In part because uh, federal law provides that should they take it down promptly, there will be no question but that they are not liable for oh. secondary copyright infringement. Okay. It doesn't mean that they are liable if they fail to take it down. It's just firms are risk-averse, so they just right. take it down. And there's not a parallel provision for claims of defamation. We're speaking with Jonathan Zitrain, who is the author of The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. And he has uh, a wonderful book that you must absolutely read. And I want to also give... What is your website again? Is it uh, jz.org? That'll do it. That's one place that they can learn about it. And how about giving your other websites as well? Well, for the uh, Future of the Internet book, uh, there's a website at futureoftheinternet.org. I know you've been traveling all around speaking about this book and giving speeches and all sorts of stuff. We appreciate your time so much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure, Mari. Thank you so much for all having right. me. All right. We will have you back again, and we'll talk about your next book. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And okay. thanks for indulging my travel weariness. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for indulging my low-techie questions. Not at all. I'm, I'm just so pleased that you enjoyed the book and that, we're, that you were able to give it a read. Yes. And I'll look for the show. Yeah, and I'm passing it around. Okay. Sounds great. Thank okay. you. Okay. Good Take night. Care. Now you're going to join us when we speak with Michael Willett, who's been on our show before. He's a senior director in Seagate Research, focusing on security functionality on hard drives. Michael Willett also represents Seagate on the Trusted Computing Group Board of Directors, Technical Committee, and the Trusted Storage Work Group. He's also chairing the Privacy Framework Project of the ISTPA, developing a framework for implementing their information practices. You can learn more about him at Seagate.com and hear his previous interview, but we're going to take you right to the Data Protection Summit where we're joining Michael. Guess what, Lloyd? Here we are, and we're seeing our old friend Michael Willett. Hello. And Michael was with us last year. We did a whole hour with him. He is so fabulous. Michael, tell us what is going on with your company. Well, I, as you know, I work for Seagate Technology, and we're doing security directly on the hard drives. Terrific. But what, but what we're representing here is the Trusted Computing Group, and that's a consortium of, of 150-plus uh, companies that are trying to put trust and security in your laptop or in your computer, whatever type of computer you have. So the thing we're really featuring here is full disk encryption directly on the hard drive so that the data that you're writing to the drive is fully encrypted, if you lose that drive or the laptop is stolen or misplaced, you can feel uh, confident that the data is protected because it's been encrypted. And, you know, we hear about so many laptops being stolen, so this is a critical issue. Exactly. Tell us about the consortium. Tell us more about what they do. 
Well, the Trusted Computing Group, uh, its claim to fame was actually building a, a little hardware chip called the Trusted Platform Module, the TPM chip, that is probably on almost every laptop today. We have 150, almost 200 million of these TPMs have been shipped already. So it's probably in a laptop you use. And applications can use that piece of hardware. It's a cryptographic chip, and it's used to test the integrity of your software. If, you're, wow. if you think that a virus or some other uh, uh, unauthorized thing has happened to your software, you can have it tested through this chip. Its integrity can be tested, and if there's any change in the integrity, wow. you know that something's happened to your software. So we're really encouraging software companies to use that, uh, not only with applications, but with the operating system, with the BIOS code that's in your laptop. Yeah. They can use that integrity metric function in the TPM to test uh, the integrity of software. So Michael, I use Norton antivirus, so Symantec would be one that you might partner with if well, they would... Well, exactly. Now they could extend... So how do they do that? Well, yeah. they, they're a software, uh, they're a piece of software that looks at your software. Right. They're an application looking at your software to see if something uh, has been in, that they know of already, because they're looking for things called fingerprints. Right, right, right. Each virus has its own fingerprint. Right. So they have to look for known fingerprints. You have to download, their, you do your live you update. You download, you update the fingerprint list, right, and you right. have to look for that, that set of fingerprints right. in your software. Now the TPM chip works differently. What, what you do is, when you first receive a piece of application software, it's measured, sort of photographed, if you will, electronically photographed uh, by a cryptographic process in the chip, and there's a picture of it, okay. electronic. Right. Then, in, in, in a couple of days later, you could have that software retested, in a sense, re-photographed. And if anything has changed in the electronic photograph, right, the the integrity metric right. that was made. So like if there's the, spyware that came if in anything, or anything came in. Yeah. See and that way I don't have to know what the fingerprint is, I don't have to know what it looked like. Right. All it that it'll you tell me if something change. changed, right? But, that you but didn't Michael, authorize. You can't you don't take the computer in, right? It would be something that they test from a another place. No, it's done right place. in your laptop. Oh it's right as soon oh. as you're an application you're using supports the TPM chip and all the interfacing is there and we're getting more of these applications supporting it or the operating system itself. Microsoft itself is beginning to use the TPM chip for various purposes like I'm describing. Right. So when your operating system uses it, the operating system will use that function to measure various application components and automatically do the process and tell you if something's wrong. So how would I know? I mean, I probably have it on my computer. I have one of my computers is really brand new, so it must be on my computer. The TPM chip is most certainly there. Okay, but, but how it takes do I a, know if it's going to be? I mean, how do I make it work? Well, you really have to have one of these applications or operating systems take advantage of it. Okay, uh, so I use Microsoft. Are they involved in this? They are involved very much in this, but okay. they're only using it for certain functions right uh, now. So more and more in the future, they'll say. We're, we're TPM enabled, we're using the TPM chip for, for certain functions. Right, so otherwise you don't just keep going on and have all this spyware that you don't know about for years. Exactly, right. I had a guy just call me about a week and a half ago that's, that there was key logging software that came somehow and got his password, took $100,000 of his money in his business account. Oh boy, from key logging. Now see, now if, that would show up? If that application, if the if the application he was running, not the key logging, but the application right, was using right. the TPM chip, they it would it would have these continuous pictures being made of the app of the software. Right. And as soon as something changed, be an, you would warning. be alerted. There would be a warning and would be alerted. So it just takes. Yeah, because he had no idea. Exactly. He had no idea until he had his computer people come and see that there was that on there. So, so see, part of the reason we're here and we're outreach from Trusted Computing Group is we're trying to encourage the application community to use this facility that's already right. built into the laptop. Well, if, they, if it's already been built in, why haven't they been using it? It's uh, it's a, it's one of those uptake uh, questions. No. You know, it's just a matter of how well our outreach program is. We've got 150 strong members. A lot of those are developers. Most are developers. So uh, they've developed the specifications. Now they're beginning to use it. But it's the, it's the old question of ramp up and using a new technology. Well, it's, you know, you're a great spokesperson because you can make it understandable oh, to well. even Lloyd and I. So, oh, thank you. Thank so that's why maybe they just don't understand what it can do. Well, so. and we're doing more and more outreach. This is the year of outreach for the Trusted Computing Group, trying to get people to understand our technology. Well, listen, if you want to come on our show again for an hour, you just tell me. Write me an email oh, and we'll you. get you to explain well, everything. I might. Could I comment on one of the things that we're featuring? Sure. One of the other. Sure. The TCG, the Trusted Computing Group, is working on peripheral devices, including the uh, secure storage, trusted storage. Right. And the, and and what we just gave a presentation on the fact that 
we see the year 2008 as the year of the perfect storm. Well, yeah. What we mean by that is that there are three things coming together for business that uh, pretend perhaps a lot of it problems and issues for business this year, and that is we're generating more data, more mm -hmm. sensitive data, more right. personal data, right. right? We know that. We're uh, more mobile. Last year was the year when there were more laptops in business than laptop, I mean, more laptops than desktop computers. So we're more mobile than we've ever been before. So we have sensitive data on the move, and right? And a lot of USB plugs. And, and other, uh, other forms of storage. And mobile stuff, right? yeah. And the big thing you've seen, I'm sure, in the last couple of years is the compliance requirements. There are what are called the data breach notification laws in 35 plus states. 39 now. 39, there we go. And, and, the, and the federal government too, saying that if you have a breach of sensitive information, right, right and it's not encrypted, have, and it's not encrypted, then you, you have to do go through a notification process, right, right. which is very public, very exposing, very, embarrassing, very, very expensive. expensive, exactly. But if you can prove that you were using encryption with that data, right. you have what's called a safe harbor. Right. You can right. sail into that safe that's harbor your, your not have to right. not have to uh, notify. So what we're featuring here is not only the full disk encrypting drive that does the encryption in hardware, right. Right. but we have the supporting application software that does all that auditing and verification that it was actually ah. used. Because the government doesn't want you to just say, I bought a piece of Right, I bought right. the Seagate drive. Big deal. It'll, so what? How are you How do using I know it? you were using yeah. it? And the software actually does the audit and the uh, verification and the compliance stuff wow. on top of that. So wow. We can prove to the government it was actually encrypted. So, so Michael, what should they do? Go to Seagate.com? Uh, certainly, Seagate.com, where you can hear about the full disk encrypting drive right in hardware. And then, and then about the storage, where should they go? Same place? Same place, exactly. And I'd, I'd, of course, ask them to visit the... the trustedcomputinggroup.org website because okay. all of the work groups including the storage work group the work we've been doing is featured there I'll always pick my favorite subject enjoyed it thank you so much the opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI its management or the UC Board of Regents of Privacy Piracy, which airs right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also so very privileged to be able to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And tonight we are so thrilled to have Sergeant David Noose joining us, and he supervises the Orange County Sheriff Department's Internal Affairs Unit, and he's been with the Sheriff's Department for 18 years. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. You're welcome, Mari. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, David, so what does the Orange County Sheriff's Department's Internal Affairs Unit do? Well, Mari, the state of California and the Penal Code requires that law enforcement agencies have a mechanism in place to receive complaints, and the Sheriff's Department, obviously, we comply with that, and we investigate allegations of employee misconduct. We do not investigate allegations of criminal wrongdoing. It's just violations, typically, of our rules and regulations and our policies and procedures. Rules and regulations being uh, general guidelines about behavior. You will be polite and courteous. You will be honest. You will show up to work on time. Policies and procedures being more specifically how do you handle specific circumstances like on patrol, how do you handle a burglar alarm call, or in the jail, how do you handle the uncuffing procedure of a new arrestee. So we investigate allegations of employee misconduct. We, and additionally, we investigate approximately 300 complaints a year. About 100 of those come from the citizens themselves. The other 200, roughly, and this is an approximation, come from the employees themselves, typically starting with the first-line supervision. They'll document a uh, possible problem, send it up through their chain of command, and ultimately it will come over here to Internal Affairs and we'll investigate. Now, if a citizen has a complaint about a sheriff's employee, what should he do? Well, the easiest way is to call Internal Affairs directly. My phone number here is uh, 714-714. 647-1874. My investigator picks up the phone and the citizen can discuss the situation with the investigator. And a lot of times, Mari, the citizen doesn't necessarily want to take the complaint straight to a personnel investigation, a formal internal affairs investigation. A lot of times they're just a little bit confused about 
why a deputy conducted themselves in a particular matter, a lot of times they're not privy to police training, and we're very concerned for officer safety, and a lot of times that leads uh, deputies in the field to do some things that are a little bit of a head-scratcher sometimes. So sometimes one of my internal affairs investigators can explain to them why a deputy may have done what he or she did. And then we also refer them to that employee's supervisor. And if they want to handle it just with the supervisor talking to the deputy, maybe offering some counsel or investigating it in that way. And then finally, the most common way is that we will then send them out a official personnel complaint form. They'll fill it out. It'll come back to internal affairs and we will commence with an investigation. But there are other ways you can comment on an employee's performance. If you go to our website, uh, the department website, it's ocsd.org. On the front page there down at the bottom, there's a tab that says contact info, and that gives the citizens the phone numbers and email addresses for every division within our department. So if you want to be a little bit less formal and just shoot an email or a quick phone call, that's another way to make a complaint about our employees. Well, what we're going to do is have you back next week to tell us some more great information. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. You're welcome.